Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Nah. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Nah. Yeah, Deke. Welcome back to the Decast. I'm here today with my friend Alex. Um, Alex is a, a lab technician that I actually found on Reddit, and um, we're going to discuss today some of his work and really as it relates to COVID testing um, and all of that. So, welcome, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, so, firstly, how I've randomly found you on this subreddit. Um, the subreddit was, I believe, medical lab technicians. Uh, why did you join that, or wh- what do you contribute or get from that? Uh, uh, the no med lab Reddit, it's sort of a, a lot of us don't work in too many different labs. Um, some people do, some people don't. And it's every office, labs are no different. They have their own sort of internal politics. We start to wonder, is, is this everywhere, or is it just me? Um, just for like the, the usual nonsense. And then you find out that, yeah, like every office has politics, every lab has politics, um, and it's all basically the same. That was probably like one of my biggest draws. And then there's some, uh, there's some more useful talk that does go on where people are talking about the pros and cons of different platforms. Uh, we work with like a lot of instrumentation and there's probably close to a dozen vendors for, for most tests. So sometimes just to get an idea um, the salespeople that come in, they're, they're salespeople. When someone is trying to sell you a system, they will talk it to the moon. And then the reality is a little different. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So what can you say about your background education-wise? or, or um, And was there an official job title that you have other than lab technician? Or Yeah. So there's different tiers. So a medical lab technician would be someone usually with a two-year degree. Uh, would be considered either a technologist or a lab scientist, which is someone who has either a four-year degree plus a one-year internship um, or like a four plus one program. So that would be me. I'd be more of a lab scientist. Uh, Great. And so uh, you explained to me a little bit by email, but can you give people an overview, generically speaking, of where you work and and what capacity you uh, do COVID testing in? So I work at a large teaching hospital in the mid-Atlantic region. we're over, I think, 600 beds. It's a big hospital. Um, we've been doing COVID testing since April of the COVID outbreak, which was really bad in our area. Our current volume is about 300 tests per day in-house. Um, what else should I include as far as details? I've been working in molecular diagnostics since 2013. Um, I used to work at a large reference lab that's doing you now thousands of tests a day throughout for the US. Hmm. Um, so one question I have, I guess, is uh, how can we t- tell the average person sort of what a PCR test is? Um, is, that a, is that a simple question? It is, is it somewhat. <laughs> um, and it's something we have to explain, not just to, to lay people, but also sometimes to remind doctors. Uh, right. A PCR test looks for the genetic material. Um, the theory has, he has become unfortunately well-known, Carrie Mullis, in recent times. Mm-hmm. He invented PCR. Um, he says it came to him in a dream, and basically it takes this uh, organism that lives in hot pools that has to replicate its DNA 
in these extreme temperatures. And it uses that to be able to turn on and off replication in cycles, which allows us to amplify the DNA. Um, and so that's the basis of all PCR testing is polymerase that we get from this one organism. Um, the current systems that are all in use are basically all real-time PCRs. So they, they essentially read and amplify at the same time rather than amplifying everything and reading it at the end. And when they talk about thresholds, um, how should the average person think about thresholds or how, how does it... Um, the best it analogy I can come up with is, is it's similar to looking at horsepower on a car. Um, it tells you vaguely that a car with more horsepower um, is faster in a general sense, but you couldn't look solely at horsepower between two cars and say, this car will be faster because there are numerous other things going on. Uh, I think that's probably some important nuance that gets significantly overlooked. People act as if, you know, if something is, is a 25 cycles, it's always going to be 25 cycles across all platforms, which it will not. I could guarantee you that just about, because these are multiple different instruments. Um, one of the things that hasn't gotten any attention is um, when we're looking at cycle values or cycle thresholds, what's being measured is called a RFU, a relative fluorescence unit. So right there in the name, it's a relative measure. It varies from um, provider to provider. They all have different blocks that they use to heat. They all use different chemistries. They all use different sensors for the actual fluorescence itself. You can't really compare one platform to another one-to-one, -one, um, which is why when we do it, we do what's called parallel studies, where we take one platform, we take, you know, if this platform gave me these 20 positives and these 20 negatives, we will take that and run it on another platform to make sure that we have 20 negatives and 20 positives. Uh, right, because because you can't just say like, oh, it worked on this platform; it's always going to work. Right, so it's like a double check. Yeah, so you're testing the different ones to make sure that they're relatively similar in their outcomes. In yep. that sense. So, so when you talked about horsepower, we're talking about speed. Are you? Does that refer to accuracy of the test? Is that the analogy? Or, um, so if you think of cycle threshold as how positive something is it sort of refers to there's a general trend where a lower cycle number is more positive and a higher cycle number is less positive, uh -huh. but across different platforms, like a 30 cycle number is not the same. Right. Okay. And now when um, the WHO comes and this is a point where a lot of people get confused and misinformation comes out that when the WHO says they change the threshold, um, uh, suggestion or recommendation um i guess multiple questions but one being what exactly does that does that mean in a general sense but also who decides the, th the threshold count like is it state by state is it lab by lab is it you know how, how how do they take the recommendation and implement that like how strict would they so follow? most probably at this point in the US at least, 90% of the testing is not being done by a Department of Health anymore. They're being done at private labs using commercial EUA tests. Um, people have heard about the Abbott ID Now, they've heard about some of the various other platforms. Um, so anything that's run on those is basically, it's up for the manufacturer. They all have their own internal um, 
we also they also look at more than just the cycle number. They usually look at the math. Um, polymerase chain reaction is a um, it's a logarithmic process. So we're all we're all somewhat familiar now with uh, log curves and how they look. And so they will they will also do some more math to check that it fits a log curve that there's that it's not just some sort of you know odd peak. Um, and a lot of that is proprietary knowledge. Um, and decided by the companies. Some of them don't actually cycle as high as the cutoffs that they've made. I know one of the ones we use is the Avid M2000. Uh, it only does 35 cycles. The cutoff is 31.5, I believe. Mm. Um, anything above that, it will list as negative. Um, there's another system we use. I think it, they increase the cutoff uh, from Roche from 37 to 38. I think a lot of what's happened is there's always been, it's not just lay people that don't necessarily understand, or I wouldn't say understand, but sometimes appreciate the nuance between a culture test and a PCR test. Um, because we've had to, I know even prior to COVID, I've heard uh, talks that doctors have called complaining that a patient has tested positive for something that they had already treated the patient for several weeks ago. And it had to be reiterated to them that this is a DNA-based test. The DNA can stick around for a while. It's not necessary. There are a couple viral, um, there are viral tests that are quantitative. Um, your HIV quantitatives where you can look at viral copies and it is quantitative and it's been correlated to a disease state. Um, most these viral, are qualitative. We're talking yeah, about. these are all qualitative. It's just a yes, no, is it there? Right. Internally, we know roughly, we know roughly how positive or unpositive something is, but we can't say we can't really say copies, um, other than referring to reference material. Because in a given uh, PCR plot, there will be an area of linearity where every roughly three point three cycles, you'll have one log difference. So if something is a thousand copies, you know at 22 cycle threshold at 25.3 cycle thresholds, you would expect it to be roughly 100. Mm. But that relationship is only for a specific range and towards either end, it just sort of falls apart. You can't really reproduce it. Mm. So getting into sort of the misinformation or what are the, some of the biggest points of, um, misunderstanding that you've come in contact with. I, I wish I could list off all the various conspiracy theories, but it's hard to almost keep track. And um, I guess generally what I hear is um, just that there's a lot of false positives. And uh, when I hear that, I just think, you know, with anything, there must be some false positives, but the, the relative amount of false positives must be small enough that it it's not a big deal. Could you elaborate on any of that? Yeah, um, any test does have false positives. It's it's part of it's part of any sort of test. Um, it's where doctors are supposed to use their clinical judgment. Um, they say that doctors use lab results for seventy percent of all medical decisions, um, but I think it sort of goes beyond that. And that some doctors will just look at what the lab result. And um, there are some tests where obviously, if one of the big ones in chemistry is potassium. If a sample sits for too long and hemolyzes, you, you'll get a false high potassium. Every doctor knows this. If they get uh, an extremely high potassium on a 
patient that's obviously talking, they're not just going to shock paddle them because they have clinical judgment. Um, and I think what we see is a lot of sort of avoiding that conversation as far as, you know, tests that are ordered with a high clinical suspicion. It's very good. Um, there's similar parallels with discussions over uh, false positives from when we talk about um, video facial recognition. Hmm. You know, you talk about if, if something has a 99.9% .9 accuracy rate, but you're catching, say, a one in 10 million terrorist, you're going to wind up with a thousand innocent people for every terrorist, and it's going to be basically useless. Right. That's, that's when we get into these very low clinical suspicion. You will get more false positives, um, but that's where clinical judgment and retesting can come in. Right. And so I guess, again, do you run into, like you said, there's um, both in the public as well as people in the industry of lab techs, like people who have certain misinformation or believe certain conspiracy theories. What is something that you run into or have to debunk? Do you ever uh, get involved in that with people? And I have heard through the grapevine that um, certain accounts that we do have, have had complaints about positives and then, then becoming negative and that they really don't like it. It's disruptive to them. How can, how can we mitigate it? Um, and we did implement some policies to where, you know, we internally um, said that if the machine is going to put it off at 31 and a half, we can see that most of these callbacks that we get are between are in this range right around 30. We will internally repeat those just uh -huh. to be sure automatically. Um, other labs have probably implemented similar procedures. I spoke to a colleague who worked at a different large reference lab. They said they had an account that was a nursing home, uh, allegedly, that complained about large amounts of positives. And then suddenly they got a ton of negatives. They're, sorry, they complained about a large number of positives. And they were asking, how do we get fewer positives? Um, which is a really bizarre question to get as a lab. <laughs> right. Um, and he then noticed, so they, they sort of internally flagged that account as just like odd. And so they noticed that samples from that account started becoming negative like overnight. Um, so the long story short is they tested it on a different platform for just human DNA. And they found that it looked, it appeared, it appeared they had the suspicion that this nursing home may have potentially just not been swapping. It was sending blank swabs as patients, which would be, no one wants to deal with. So they actually dropped them as an account and they had to find some other lab. Okay. That's interesting because I have heard that from random people like, you always have these, this phenomenon happens where you go to the barbershop or something and the guy's cutting your hair and he tells you a story that his aunt's sisters, so-and-so, you know, works at a hospital and they, they just write down COVID or just some sort of conspiracy theory that they heard tertiarily through somebody else. And everybody seems to have, it's like a ghost story almost like everybody has like an uncle or aunt that saw a ghost or something. Yeah. So they'll like repeat these things and you can just either believe them or say like, hmm, I'm going to double check this or look into it but um yeah it's uh this whole idea of like not not being swabbed um again th these just have to be really rare scenarios right and i mean we're because we're having such massive testing and, and covid is such a large thing right now it would make sense that even if th those things are rare you're gonna have you will find that yeah you're gonna notice it much more right so i mean 
again, we've, we, we haven't had anything comparable to this pandemic as far as testing goes, right? Like what would have been the last uh, time where like a lot of testing was going on, like H1N1 or some other pandemic or the first yeah. SARS? I don't know. Like, um, I would say probably H1N1, but a lot of that was handled by the health department. It, was, it never got to this scale. Um, yeah. And that's, that's part of how if things are handled by the health department, the health department has very specific forms they want filled out that shows that there's a high suspicion. Um, when we initially started testing, the only people getting tested because of limited resources were people who met CDC criteria, which everyone should remember were very strict. And there were calls that, hey, maybe this criteria is too strict. And lo and behold, we did find out that there was community spread considerably before we thought because we started testing people. Um, these are things that are most of the, the criticisms are not specific to COVID is probably the biggest thing. I've worked at other labs. These are similar. These, they ring true to me because they're similar enough to other things I've noticed. Um, at one of my old jobs, we used to get collection kits that were expired from one account where just it's, you know, something that comes free as like a collection kit as part of, you know, if you want to send us this test, this is your collection kit. We've already paid for it. Send it to us. Uh, and if you, if it expires, like just tell us and we'll, we'll give you new ones. Right. They just didn't and didn't notice. And then, so we get it and we have all of these collections from patients who are now in technically expired vials that probably don't mean anything. So we send it out with the disclaimer. Um, letting the physician know and please, please, please keep track of your inventory. Um, there's all sorts of other things I've heard. Uh, another big one that a lot of labs struggle with um, is blood cultures. There's been initiatives probably at every hospital to get people to wait the full 30 seconds when collecting for a blood culture, because if you don't, it will be contaminated. Mm. And then the lab is stuck holding the bag. Um, telling you that, hey, this sample was contaminated and you really can't do anything with it. And we have really, it's very frustrating for us to be in the position where we have no control over certain parts of the process and we just have to take that on good faith. Right, as far as if the, before you're part of the COGS and then and sort of after, you, you're one part of it, so you can't, right, speak for what may have happened before or... But that, that's an interesting point that I just thought of now that obviously with the scale of COVID and the amount of testing, you're going to have so many uh, more of those anomalies uh, that people will notice because people don't tend to notice or talk about the ones that go fine and make sense and uh, you don't, don't have any issues with them. And there is a large political aspect. I believe um, probably one of the biggest sort of scandals in testing, there have been a couple. Um, one of the biggest scandals was, I believe it was in 2009, and I believe it was Quest Diagnostics. One of their vitamin Ds, you do a calibration, um, which is similar for any sort of quantitative test, you run what's called a calibration curve, and that sort of establishes your points of where your different concentrations are, and then you use that curve on real patients to match where the, you see where the real patients fall on that curve, and you determine a quantitation from that. So in 2009, I believe it was, it was eventually found out that Quest had messed up one of their 
um, calibration curves for a vitamin D test and millions, I believe, of people were affected with slightly erroneous results. Hmm. Um, and so, of course, Quest offered free retesting for anyone that was affected. Um, but it flies under the public conscience radar of, you know, how could this have been prevented? What could we be doing? Because yeah. when people hear that they have slightly low vitamin D, they go take a vitamin D supplement for a couple of weeks and they forget about it. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned the politicization. Obviously, we, we don't need to get too political. But uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, of course, we had uh, former President Trump uh, explaining about, um, you know, the more tests, the more cases. And this is a popular talking point that uh, I don't know if it's still mentioned by people, but uh, how should people think about that statement or, or how would you explain why it's untrue? Um, to a degree, yes, you'll find more cases, but theoretically the positivity rate should go down. Um, so that's why we look, we were looking at both. When we first started testing, our positivity rate was so bad that we actually, um, started talking to another facility that was using the same instrument under the same guidelines, just to confirm that, you know, it was this bad because when we had started in early April, there was no sense really publicly yet. Um, we started very early into the pandemic with our testing. So we were going in blind. We didn't know what the positivity rate should be because everyone that was being tested was like very ill. Hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that gets lost is the potential for false negatives. Um, most of the commercial tests that are out now have a limit of detection roughly one-tenth that of the ones that were initially available in the U.S. through the CDC. Um, so when we did our first validation, I think we found a couple that we determined were false negatives from us, another facility that was using the CDC test. Hmm. And I think that's something that probably should get equal airtime is, you know, we have false negatives. Right. False positives. Yes, exactly. That's obviously something that uh, is equally, if not more important. Um, so nowadays with the timing of the tests, uh, how fast do you turn around? Well, like at the beginning of the pandemic, was it a couple of days or a lot of, depending on the state you were in, you might have taken longer than others, but nowadays what's the turnaround time on a COVID test? Um, it'll vary from facility to facility. Probably one of the longest systems takes, I don't think any system probably takes longer than for a batch of 94 patients, uh, probably eight hours, um, just to actually run it. The rest is all logistics. Right. Um, you know, of, of a dedicated lab, like one of the large reference labs, like Quest and LabCorp their half or more of their business is logistics. It's the collection of the samples, the, the army of phlebotomists they have across the country, and then getting the samples to their core labs, getting them processed and accessioned in the system, and then actually delivering it to the lab. All of that takes time. Uh, when I worked at a reference lab, we were typically two days behind. That was our, that was our, that was considered, you know, a normal would be to be about two days behind and we would catch up. Usually reference labs don't get anything on, on Sundays and Mondays is very light. 
because you're more or less a day behind the work week because mm-hmm. the couriers and, and all the logistics stuff has to happen before it even gets to you. Right. Um, so it's probably now probably down to around 48 hours for like the largest reference labs, probably sometimes shorter. It's going to depend on when the couriers pick up for your, wherever you're getting tested. Um, if the courier just came for your facility for the day or depending on if it's every few hours. Um, so that'll be the biggest thing. But the tests themselves do not take that long. Um, probably, I believe most of the large formats even are shorter than that eight hours. Um, and that's for like the first run of the day. And then there'll be results like every five hours or one of them is three hours for this first set of results, results every hour and a half after that, you know, a hundred. Some of the larger systems will do thousands of tests a day. Um, and a lot of it is just the raw manpower of transferring the samples. A lot of these machines require very specific tubes, which are not NP swabs. So thousands of patients of sample, thousands of patients samples have to be moved from one tube into another that is barcoded the same. So it goes into the electronic system. And that is a lot of work. It's just a manpower question. It scales completely linearly with whatever you're running, you know, 1,000 tests versus 10,000 tests. It's going to take 10,000 more man hours to do. Right. So we're a year into the pandemic. Um, is testing at an all-time high as far as numbers of tests going on in, in the U.S., for example? Or is testing, did it reach a peak and now declining? Or how, how is that sitting right now? I know at least at my facility, it's holding stable. It hasn't really peaked Um I think basically as we needed less, um, the reference labs would usually be a, a better sense of it because at this point, almost all testing probably is screening testing for asymptomatic people. Right. Um, that's probably the biggest, biggest chunk of it is just people who either aren't sure or think they were exposed or are taking flights, live in a nursing home all of these other things that cause people to be tested, not necessarily for diagnostic purposes. Um, so it'll probably go up more with that. Like we have busy days where certain accounts and, or if there's a lot of discharges, they all get tested before they get discharged to a nursing home because the nursing home needs to know where to put them. Right. Um, it's probably plateaued. The, the bigger thing probably now is that, um, what's going to happen to all this infrastructure that has been set up afterwards is a big question for a lot of people. Hmm. Um, yeah. Can you expand on that a bit? How, what is the concerns there and um, how would that play out? Do you think? Yeah. So there have been some, I believe New York state waived certain licensing requirements for doing COVID testing. Um, a fair amount of COVID testing happens on what are called the U S point of care machines that have a separate um, regulatory structure that's less strict than lab-based testing. Um, so in New York State, at least, there's probably going to be less of a need for those non-certified um, techs. And then, so no one really knows what, what to do with those people hmm. um, that will suddenly find themselves unable to work in New York State doing what they've been doing. Hmm. Um, hopefully there will be a pathway for them to to become licensed or certified. Yeah. Okay. So maybe they could like streamline the process or something. Um, 
And a lot of people are just working tons of hours right now is a, is a big theme, huh. um, at least in the U.S., similar to nurses, but less well-known. Um, it's become sort of an initiative in nursing that there should be minimum staffing requirements. I think now would probably be a good time to talk about minimum staffing requirements in the lab. Uh, it's really no different than nursing as far as, oh, well, it's very difficult to know exactly how many people you need in the lab. It's so variable. It's really no different than nursing. It should be a healthy minimum where people don't feel overwhelmed. Um, okay. So it's being overlooked, this concept that uh, in the lab technician world, they, people are overworked too many, the longer hours and that understaffed. Is that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, they call it lean lab um, is the sort of proprietary name for the business side of um you know, like any business, we want last minute deliveries. We want to spend as little money to make as much money as possible. How can we do that? Um, so that's been a big part of it. And it should be looked at that, you know, is there a certain bare minimum where you should say you need more people? Because right now through the regulatory bodies, there's nothing on paper. It's just... We have our regulatory body in the U.S. is called CAP, the big one. There's CAP CLIA. Uh, they do the inspections and the inspection system. Um, and so technically you can be cited, but there's really no guidance as far as what one person, like should one person be limited to three stations at the very most hmm. as far as, because you have different labs. So they are one-to-one comparable. Um, you have hospital labs where one person will work maybe in chemistry and hematology, um, hopefully not chemistry, hematology and micro, but there's no real, there's no limit. Um, if you wind up in say a rural hospital, there's again, there's no limits to say that you can't just have one person in the lab. Yeah. Um, how, how important will testing remain so to speak like as we see vaccinations and then um, hopefully the end of the pandemic um you know like what is the timeline of how uh, or and, and the importance level that you see for pcr tests related to covid like will it you know we have to keep testing as we get into the vaccinations and the reopenings and that um i feel like my personal opinion is that testing will remain very still pretty important um Testing is something that patients find comforting. That's right. probably one of the biggest drivers is, is patients find it very comforting to have, to have the information. That's one of the things that is sort of at times miscommunicated. Um, we don't provide necessarily objective truth. We provide sort of probabilistic answers where it's like, there's a very good chance that you have COVID or there's a very good chance that you don't. Right. They want to know that, obviously. Um, but a lot of people take that as I definitely don't, I can do whatever. Right. Um, so there's, there's that little bit of nuance that gets left out and should be, I think at times emphasized by providers. Um, but I think that will still be very important as far as nursing home testing is a huge amount of the volume. I, I expect that to go down with vaccinations. So I, I would imagine that should help alleviate some of that. Um, but it will depend on where they go with travel restrictions and 
especially international travel is, a, is another big one where people want or people need to be tested before they arrive. Yeah. Um, so I think that'll be a big driver because as things get more normal, you have the potential for more business travel as well as people move away from Zoom. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned that, um, you know, in both medical world, professional world, um, let's say even academic world, there is misinformation or misunderstanding um, when even if we compare it to just the layman or the average person that might have a misunderstanding about say PCR, COVID testing, whatever it is. Um, you know, you'll see videos uh, or say like someone's a nurse and they, they really love something that Trump said about something scientific that turns out to be not scientifically true, but they, they, they use sort of an appeal to authority with their job title, whether it be nursing or PSW or something related to the medical field. Like, how do you think about that or, or how do you handle that in your day-to-day life when you do uh, run into that? Um, is that a concise enough question? Like, I guess something that's sort of related, but not really is I just had this discussion with some musician on Twitter where he was talking about simulation theory. And he said, you know, I, I really believe in simulation theory. And I said, it's pretty cool, but most physicists, most physicists uh, don't actually believe that we're in a simulation. And he said, well, Elon Musk and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said we are, uh, you know, and there's no way you can disprove it. And I said, I mean, Elon Musk believes a lot of crazy things and Neil deGrasse Tyson is just one astrophysicist. There's plenty of other physicists out there that you may not have heard of that are, you know, maybe more knowledgeable on subatomic particles, let's say, than Neil is. Um, So just because someone has a job title or authority doesn't necessarily mean something is true or false. Like there's a whole rant, but. uh, Yeah, it's, um, it's really hard to steer people away from that. You get a lot of, oh, well, doctor, this said this, and it's like, all right, he's a general practice physician that probably didn't study PCR at all and doesn't understand, like probably has more or less a biology 101 concept of the process. Um, His word means nothing to me. Uh, Yeah, like someone might think, like someone who doesn't know anything about biology, to them, they can't really tell the difference between someone who's done a first, second, third year university course in biology and maybe someone who's like, PhD or has 10 years of research experience or, or whatever, right? They can't really tell the difference, sort of. So they right. just leave it because of the, the title or whatever. Yeah, and that's why you always see this is always very one-sided, like they're convincing by themselves. But if you put them against someone that has been studying PCR for decades, they're going to seem very ignorant very quickly. They're probably not going to know anything past the, the talking points that are already out there. Um, and that's sort of the flag that should be the flag for people. Um, Another flag for people, I know, going back to Carrie Mullis, he's another one that's come back. They should know that he was an HIV denier. Right. You know, it's kind of a, an important footnote to know that, yes, he invented PCR, and afterwards he really went off the rails and was sort of, you know, doubled down on some of his incorrect things and just went completely out of mainstream science, which I think draws some people. I think some people are just naturally drawn to the whole underdog, uh, screw big pharma, all that. Yeah. Like the systems working against him. He had the true knowledge. He, whatever, you know, there's, you always have those cases. Um, yeah. Like the way I think about it is, I don't know what the real percentage is, but let's say, let's say one to 3% of the average population, you know, population believes in conspiracy theories. I don't know. And then, well, if you look at, let's say PhD researchers in some field, 
well, you're you're bound to probably have one to three percent of those people believe in conspiracy theories because it would sort of you know permeate that area as well. It's it's not like you're immu- immune to um, conspiratorial thinking or uh, questioning things too much or that kind of thing. Um, like this whole PCR test being the, the the gold standard, you know, that's like a ubiquitous concept from what I glean from uh, the academic world in that. Uh, but then you have these guys that'll have a book that they're trying to sell about the COVID numbers are inflated or PCR tests are, are bunk. Um, which by the way, I mean, having a book to sell on that topic seems like a, it's like a conflict of interest to right, right there. Um, I would say perhaps one of the biggest defenses is that each lab has more, has independently verified whatever system they're using. So like the conspiracy would have to be huge and decentralized. It just doesn't make sense. There would be whistleblowers blowing the lid off it. Um, yeah. And that, that's almost the best argument against every conspiracy, especially medical field conspiracy theories. Like there's a cure for cancer. They're hiding it, that kind of thing. Um, there's a gentleman from the UK, David Robert Grimes, that's been on the show before. And he wrote a paper um, just showing the math of these different things and how many people would have to be a part of something and the, you know, we're notoriously bad at keeping secrets as humans. So like you said, there there will be a whistleblower of some kind. And there are whistleblowers in... in I mean, particularly in medicine, false claims billing is, is very lucrative to whistleblow on. Um, some of the largest settlements have been for, they're called Quitam, where you get 25% of the fine. The largest ones have been several millions of dollars. Uh, for people who whistleblow about much more mundane conspiracies where pharmaceutical companies were sort of, um, they were misrepresenting their products to physicians to try and get them to keep prescribing it or to prescribe it inappropriately um, and therefore cause more Medicare billing. And there was one big one. There's been a couple um, important ones. I think one was for like an asthma medication that wasn't into, like, if you've noticed you live in Canada. There's no direct consumer advertising for pharmaceuticals, is there? No, it's something that we're yeah totally foreign to us. Yeah. So in the U.S., we have them, and uh, one of the things that's really funny to note on all of the asthma commercials is how they have like this whole blurb about how it's certain medications aren't for daily use um, because that would be considered an off-label usage that hasn't been tested by the FDA. So essentially, publicly and to the FDA, they had said, "Oh, this is not for daily use." Right. While certain salespeople were encouraged to tell doctors, it's safe to use it all the time. It's totally fine. Right. So in the confines of the doctor's office, you know, the patient and the doctor have this conversation. The doctor explains that and then they, they go, they, they trust the doctor and they go, oh, okay, I'm going to use this every day. And they mm-hmm. just don't happen to do the research or maybe they didn't know what the public stance was. And then so they mis, misuse it. Hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's a big, that's a big driver of, the profit motive. Um, I think towards testing, testing is not a lucrative field to begin with. Um, We've seen in the US massive consolidation of of laboratory testing because it doesn't make that much money and the best way to make more money from it is to have it more centralized. If one person can run two machines, but you've only got one machine, you've sort of got one and a half, you've got like half a free person, which can be very awkward to use from a labor perspective. Versus if you've got a farm of 20 machines, you know, you need exactly 10 techs. um, And you get huge cost efficiencies. 
Quest and LabCorp have the, the ability to, to really haggle the producers down to, because if you land that Quest account, they're going to be buying millions of dollars. And even if you're making $5 worth per test, that's going to be millions of tests versus hmm. a smaller lab where they don't have that sort of negotiation. Right. That makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about that before, but that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, even speaking of the finances, um, then another another way, like if there was a cure for cancer, you know, people say like there is a profit motive to keep it secret, but I've never really understood that because wouldn't there be more profit in um, winning a Nobel Prize for some discovery and the notoriety that comes with that, as well as just the administration of whatever the cure is, right? Like... Isn't that yeah. sort of obvious point? Um, one of the things that probably isn't talked about enough is how the early stage research for most medicines happens in through in the U.S. at least through NIH grants, National Institute of Health, um, and that's a lot of like the early phase one research is done is publicly funded, and then the pharmaceutical companies comb through that and look for promising promising research targets for themselves. Yeah. Um, so you have public researchers who, are, who don't have a profit motive that are looking into these things. Um, they're not doing huge trials, but they are, they are looking into certain things to look for the early sort of the, the shoots that you know, grow into, into, into therapies. Uh, the other thing is we've, we've made significant progress with certain, with certain cancers. Cervical cancer is a big one. Right. Uh, the HPV vaccines have cut down rates of cervical cancer considerably. It's a vaccine. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that there's no profit motive to curing cancer. I think the other big thing is that we think of cancer as one thing when it's actually it's multiple can multiple cancers, right? Like breast yeah. cancer, or you could have lung cancer or whatever the yeah, all the different types of cancers. Um, they have for the first time they're called immunomodulators, where we have sort of generic therapies for a broad range of cancers, you know, it's not difficult to see the, the consumer appeal to having, being able to sell one product to multiple patients. Is that immunotherapy? Is that the same term? Is that an interchangeable term or am I thinking of something else? So immunomodulators is frequently called immunotherapy um, or usually the specific term is an immune checkpoint inhibitor mm. is what I'm thinking of. That is what it essentially stops some of the anti-inflammatory processes that you normally have right? Um, for what are called uh, cancers can be grouped as far as what's called mutational burden, which is how different they are from your normal genome and cancers with a higher normal mutational burden will be, are much more frequently attacked by your immune system. And so the immunomodulators will take away some of the natural checkpoints that prevents overinflammation. So that way your immune system attacks the cancer more aggressively. Right. Huh. Interesting. Um, sort of in wrapping up, I guess, um, any other like media misinformation or things out there that we didn't cover that you think people should know about or learn about as far as testing and um, PCR and that? Um, what should they learn about? I think everyone should probably take a refresher course on statistics. Hmm. Um, it never hurts. It, statistics are something that people think is easy, but it's really not. Um, if I said a, a 100 sided dice was gonna roll on three and I landed a three, you'd say, wow, kind of lucky, but you wouldn't think it's anything crazy. If I let, said it and guessed it twice, 
you would say, wow, that's really lucky. It wouldn't be until the third or fourth or fifth time that you really start to think that something is really weird. Um, but by that second time, you're already looking at a probability of one in a thousand because it's a hundred twice. It's very unlikely. Right. Um, so it's just to sort of remember like things that are very unlikely do happen all of the time. Um, sort of dwarfism is a one in 40,000 thing, but it's very, very public and very obvious. And so, you know, when we see someone who has dwarfism, we're not like, wow, that's crazy. It's like, yeah, no, it's like, thing. It's like a thing, there's, yeah. there's thousands and millions of them across the world. It's not, it's, it's rare, but not impossible. Um, yeah. It's so, similar um, to go back to the politics a little bit. It's not too different from the election predictions. No one guaranteed Hillary Clinton would, go, would win the election. It was, she has a good chance. Right. But, and it wasn't even, you know, that high. It was no one ever said higher than 70, 30. If something 30% happens, you're not going to say like, oh my God. Yeah. The, the other thing there too, is people always say like the polls were all wrong, but if you go back and actually look over all the data, like the polls were not that far out of what they usually are. Like they were off, but not to the degree that some would have you believe. And it's about, um, you know, we have confidence intervals and that's basically, you know, it's, it should be straightforward. It's like how confident we are in this. So when we use, you know, a 97%, you, you can have, so there's false positives and false negatives, and then you'll have positive, positive um, accuracy and all that stuff. And it's similar to confidence intervals where we say like, you know, we're 90, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99% confident in these results, um, which is not 100. And yeah. it's important to know that it's not 100, but it's very, very, very high. Yeah. So... Um... Just generally, are you, um, with the vaccines coming in that, uh, are you positive about the outcomes of, of the pandemic uh, as it relates, like, specifically in the United States? Are you a little worried uh, as far as the, you know, you hear a lot, a lot of people are into getting the vaccine? Yeah, with low compliance comes, I think it will probably finally start to echo flu. Um, for, all, for all of the silly comparisons to flu before this, I think going forward, it will start to resemble the flu where, you know, people get vaccines and most people who get the vaccine will not wind up in the hospital, which was the big thing. Yeah. Um, that really strained the healthcare system. And so if most people are getting the vaccine, then we're not going to have as much hospital admissions. So then through testing and vaccining, I think we'll find an equilibrium that I think most people will find tolerable. And so I am optimistic for like the next, for even like the next flu season. It's, um, it's really interesting in that we've had such, one thing that has not been, I think, praised enough is um, how low the flu season was this year. I know. Yeah. Across the world, like close, close to zero. Yeah. Across yeah, in our institution, it has been, all COVID, which is another thing where it's like, people yeah, talk the, about and this might be, like, this might be some other path of conversation, but we can touch on it. Like people who sort of believe COVID is some sort of hoax or whatever will say that somehow the fact that there's no flu numbers means that, I don't know, either they think the COVID cases are flu cases or, or something. I'm not quite sure what, how to wrap my head again around the conspiracy, but uh, you know, uh, isn't it just a form uh, looking at the absolute numbers, right? Like we see all these, 
extra deaths. And this is how, if I'm not mistaken, how people even look back at plague from the past. They'll actually go and compare death numbers um, to other points in the past and just mm-hmm. compare and say, okay, we have this, you know, the black plague or the, whatever the back in the day, uh, this many more millions of deaths. And uh, there wasn't even the war. world wars, you know? Yeah. 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 That's another big one where like you look at the death rate and then there's usually a little arrow. that's like, Oh yeah. World war two. Right. So the, um, yeah, there's something that's showing you there. Okay. There was a bunch more deaths and we have this pandemic. I mean, yeah. Uh, one thing that's sort of not necessarily communicated well is that for a lot of diseases there's minimum exposure as far as when you'll actually get it so even for like your usual run-of-the-mill food poisoning bacteria you know for salmonella it might take 300 intact salmonella bacteria to get sick for another one it might take 10 um so one thing we've known from the start is that COVID is significantly more contagious in smaller numbers than the flu. So you need less of an exposure than the flu. So all of the things that we've been doing with COVID to keep it down have worked considerably wet more, more well on, on the flu. And yeah. that's why we have basically no flu. We have, you know, that's why it's almost all COVID. There's no sense that, and it's another one of those things where the flu manufacturers have no incentive to not have working flu tests because not everyone offers a COVID test. Right. You know, um, in speaking to you, I've realized that you, you're an intelligent person. Um, you have a good way of speaking. Now, do, you, do you have anywhere that people can follow you that you do anything? Or do you have any plans in the future, maybe to write a book or do a YouTube channel or a podcast? I mean, you've got like a ton of knowledge. Uh, you know, are you working on your career path for now? Or how, how do you see that in the future? Um, I have no immediate plans <laughs> um, for social media. A lot of us especially have very strict social media guidelines. Yeah. Um, so especially getting, getting things out there, but I, I would consider this maybe a soft pilot for very, very far in the future. (laughs) For sure. Um, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, topic that, uh, science communication, basically there's so many great practitioners or people in the field, um, that either, like you said, are are not supposed to be speaking about things or maybe they don't want to or whatever. Um, but you know, that's definitely needed in this day, especially as social media becomes more popular and, uh, that kind of thing. Right. So I would say, uh, yeah, keep it in your back pocket there an, an idea for the future, you know, cause, uh, yeah, it's been great, uh, chatting with you and learning a bit about this stuff. So thank you. So, uh, do you, you want to remain completely anonymous? Nobody can follow you or is there anywhere that you want to direct people to? Should they sign up for the subreddit? Maybe the lab, med lab technicians? Um, I don't want to, we'll see if <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to, to flood the subreddit with <laughs> randoms. Yeah. If that happens, I would say there are some there are some good sources even on YouTube. Medlife Crisis is one I like. He's a cardiologist. Cool. Um, anyone, I would say the the sort of good signs you should look for is if someone is a specialized physician, they should point out that it's not their ex- area of expertise. Um, right. They're not speaking about cardiology and say like this isn't my area of expertise. Right. Like when Trump appointed uh, that. Was he not a cardiologist to the Fauci's position at some point? He had something yeah. in there that wasn't. Yeah, that wasn't an immunologist. <laughs> People should consider specific knowledge. Someone who's you know very good at one thing is not necessarily very good at another. Yes. Well, Alex, man, uh, nice to meet you virtually. And yeah, thanks for your time and expanding on some of these topics for us. Thank you so much.